listener production. Hi, welcome back to Broadsheet Sydney Around Town's summer series. I'm Emma Joyce, Broadsheet's features editor, and I've had the pleasure of hosting this audio guide for almost a year. As we wrap up for 2023, we're looking back at the conversations we've had with chefs, artists, festival directors, business owners, and Broadsheet's team of writers. One of my favorite interviews this year was with the ever impressive Josh Nyland. When we sat down to talk in May, the chef had just launched his third cookbook. Since then, he's opened his first international restaurant, Fish, in Singapore. Of course, Josh has been making waves internationally since his first cookbook won the James Beard Book of the Year Award, which is basically like the Oscars of the food world. He's the first Aussie to win, and as you'll hear in our chat, it's all down to his passion for fishmongery. But what I loved most about it is how generous Josh is with his knowledge. He doesn't gatekeep information he thinks will transform the industry. The way he dry ages fish or the specific details of creating candles from fish fat is open to anyone. He also completely keeps it real with talking about how expensive it is to operate a hospo business. And he shares charming stories about how his kids still think the burger they're eating at Charcoal Fish is made of beef because sometimes you just need comfort food. Josh is a real gem and I hope you'll feel inspired by his philosophy. My only regret is not really asking him what he does with the fish sperm. We're going to talk about your third cookbook. But before we get into that, I would like to say that when we talk about game-changing chefs or disruptors in the industry, when your name comes up, it's with good reason. When I visit places like Fish Butchery and I buy sausages made of fish Mm -hmm. or I maybe go to Charcoal Fish and just have a fish and chips that is exactly as I expect it to Mm be, I'm constantly thinking about the sustainability behind seafood Mm. and the fish industry generally, which I wouldn't have done in a different fish and chipper Mm. or a different type of restaurant. And this is without even talking about St. Peter or Peterman's, where you are completely redefining a fine dining cuisine or a more casual family Mm. setting. And you are using the whole fish as much as possible. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about what it is that motivates you the most in your day-to-day yeah. when you are preparing fish, cooking and designing menus? Mm. The the initial motivation came from fear of failure. When we opened St. Peter, it was just Julie, my wife and I that opened St. Peter ourselves. And, and I think ever since the freedom to make our own decisions has been a, a motivation um, and to make sure that we can make a sustainable business for not just uh, our team and the fish that we purchase and all those sorts of things, but sustainable for our own lives that we aren't, I suppose, at the mercy of a partner or investors. Um, and we've been able to be very fortunate to continue on a path of independence. And that's a real motivation that we we do the right thing with, with how we handle uh, the product. And so, creativity and innovation was born about from the idea that I had a problem, which was that I selected one of the most difficult proteins to work with as a cook and one of the most uh, expensive. So, I mean, expensive from how much a fish costs through to how laborious it is. So really, St. Peter went off on a path and found its lane within uh, working with fish in a more holistic way uh, because it didn't make any sense to throw half the fish in the bin. And I think I've, I've said it before, it's $4,500 for my first ever bill for fish that I paid, not for vegetables and dry store and things. It was 
$4,500 just for fish to turn the lights on at St. Peter. And you work out the maths of what you're educated in a college setting, in a TAFE setting. It's, you know, you, you get told that 45% is the yield uh, and the remainder is deemed as loss. And that to me was, I suppose, economically not viable and ethically incorrect. And there's only so much fish stock we kind of need as well. So it was really to turn our attention uh, creatively to that as a group. And I, I was very spoiled to be working with some quite extraordinary chefs at the time in Alana Sapwell and Eilish Maloney and Tristan Rebbitz and all these great chefs that have come along at St. Peter. And we, we put our heads together and we came up with a whole lot of creative ways to bring desirability to some fairly texturally compromised and aesthetically challenging parts of the fish. And the first one was making almost like a prawn cracker out of an eye. And then we went on and made black pudding out of the fish blood. And, you know, we were using fish sperm and fish roe and hearts and livers and things. And, and we had a great time. We look at a fish as having primary cuts and having secondary cuts. And that purchasing a fish for one single venue, it's quite challenging to realize the full yield into one venue. And I think that's why we've gone and opened the other venues that we've done. It's not for any kind of rollout strategy of trying to become this big group empire um, that, that does fish in a myriad of different ways. It's literally every time I cut into the fish, there's a new opportunity that lies there. You know, finally now with Peterman open with charcoal fish and the fish butcheries and St. Peter, there's home for all of these different parts of the fish, which captures the appropriate amount of margin in each venue. And I don't think we talk enough about the economics behind business in general, and especially with fish. So motivation lies within the endless creative opportunity, just seeing a fish more as meat and drawing down upon the centuries of knowledge we have around how a butcher works and applying those practices to the world of fish. You've been saying for a very long time that it just doesn't make any sense to no. have this much waste across mm. the industry at large. Is there any one thing or is there kind of a solution that we should be striving for? Mm. Can you simplify it for us? I mean, the simplest solution for me is if you choose to have fish on your restaurant menu uh, or you choose to consume fish, you, you kind of need to wear 100% of what that looks like. Um, if if you want to have a multitude of different species on your menu, or even if you just want to have two different raw fish options on your menu, when you purchase that fish, you use all of it. And if you don't, then maybe take that off the menu and think about something else that you're more passionate about or something that you could generate more from. And that's the only way that I really see it working. Unfortunately, the transaction of fillets across the counter we're happy to live in a state of ignorance where we're able to purchase a fillet, take exactly what we want, and then walk away and, and not even think about it. And that's why it's very difficult to write a cookbook for home. It's very difficult to write a cookbook directly to the audience that wants to cook, you know, Josh's version of charcoal fish on the barbecue on a Sunday afternoon, because unfortunately they, they will go to the market and they will buy exactly what I tell them to and then try to replicate what that experience looks like. And so, this voice within this book is geared very much at the industry to sort of suggest you will have guests coming to you to purchase that middle of the fillet. But if you turn to the back of the book in the craft section, once that fillet's gone, then here's what to do with everything that's left. And that might be making the sausages, making the terrines, making a fish finger, as humble as that is, turning a fish finger or a fish cake into something that is from a known location and is made with real fish that wasn't the center cut. It might be the head or it might be the tail. So it's being a bit more intentional, I think. 
Let's talk about your previous two cookbooks. The Whole Fish Cookbook was presented the James Beard Book of the Year Award in 2020. That's a a huge accolade Mm. internationally. And then your second cookbook, Take One Fish, had 15 different fish species that Mm. we might not be familiar with or wanted to introduce in a way that would feel like something we could work with at home. And then now your third cookbook, you've mentioned that it's leaning towards the industry as much as for people at home. Mm. And you've got all these different expert tips and techniques that Mm. you're sharing with people. Can you tell me what even is a reverse butterfly? (laughs) No, I mean, I'm trying to put names to things perhaps that haven't had names put to them before. And so uh, I see it as a loose reference point for, for where to begin, where the knife sits. A lot of those cuts within the book, yes, they are I suppose, leaning into the industry, but also to the adventurous home cook that really does have probably, you know, a more diverse range of knives than I personally do. And are just really interested and excited. And and this book, as much as I say it's for the industry, it is for the home cook as well to recognize the the true labor and skill involved in what what this all looks like and and not just the skill within the work that we do within within our venues, but uh, within how a fish is caught. We've broken the book up into three sections, catch, cut, and craft. And within catch, I've managed to take the voice of a modern fishmonger in a good friend of mine, Tony. He's um, you know, relatively young guy, and he's been doing this for a really long time. And I wanted him to explain, I suppose, the details within being employed as a fishmonger and what that title even looks like and what the responsibilities are that he has. And then speaking to Darren O'Rourke at um, Vic's Meats, the head butcher there, and and actually getting context from a meat butcher about what his job is and, and what the recovery rate looks like per, per animal. And then speaking to a fisherman in Luke Beschultz up at Nautical Seafood and getting him to give clarity and context around how his decisions to catch a fish one at a time uh, and practice the ethics that he does, how much that costs and and what are all the costs associated with it so that then that translates into an understanding of value and gives context to the fish sitting beneath the plastic at Woolworths or Coles that we see and we, we consume but lack, I suppose, awareness in terms of how it even got there um, and, and showcasing how a fish... Uh, is caught and and then killed and then transported to the market and I think that's important but and it's not something that we see too frequently in books and I'm very I suppose grateful that Hardy Grant uh, the publishers put their hand up and and trusted uh, what what we've gone and and put into this one. So your third cookbook, Fish Butchery: Mastering the Catch, Cut, and Craft by Josh Nyland, is out right now. Yes, um, so people can buy it. Yes, <laughs> excellent. And you've also got forty recipes in there, and they're four things that sound reasonable: fish sticks, pies, <laughs> but also things that maybe are unusual to have seafood within. So like mm-hmm. a, like cured meats, like a chorizo, or you've got a tuna mincemeat pie, yeah. for example. What is the item or the recipe in there that you think people would be interested to hear as being maybe one of the most creative that you've come up with? Goodness. I think the salamis and and the mortadellas and and things like that are are quite abstract in there, placing fish in amongst (laughs) that that catalogue of um, charcuterie and salumi that we've become so synonymous with, with meat. But, I mean, those... Recipes have been crafted in a way that utilize fish that was left over. That that was the whole catalyst for why we even made them in the first place. 
mean, in the in the very beginning, I was very um, stubborn around not wanting to purchase fish to produce what those products were. It was waiting until you accumulated enough to then produce it. Even then, further into the book, uh, in a very abstract sense, the recipes in there that don't actually involve consuming it at the end. It's turning fish bones into plates and turning fish fat into soap and candles uh, and then working with Matt Wiley to produce um, you know, cocktails using the waste from a fish as well. And to include all the voices from these people into the book, I think, is is quite encouraging uh, for the industry and, and for um, home cooks as well to see that there is more diverse opportunity that lies within a fish and it doesn't doesn't always have to end up on the plate. It can actually be the plate. You also work with lots of other businesses around Sydney. So Hunter Candles is a, a great one for using the the fat of a Murray cod yep. for creating a candle. And you you also have you collaborate on an ice cream. Yeah. With Chichione. With Chichione using the fat of the Murray cod yeah. as well. Yeah. Do you have circumstances where you don't have enough of yeah. that particular product. To we find ourselves <laughs> in a, in a state of that at the moment. I mean, when when you're able to k- kind of generate all these recipes and you're excited and people are very excited to try it, it almost feels like when we first opened St. Peter, when we started uncovering all these things, we were only one restaurant that served 34 guests at a time and it got to the point where we were doing 75, 80 people in a service and everybody came to try the secondaries or the sundries of a fish. And so what happened was the sundries started to exceed the sales of the primary cuts. And that's quite challenging. It's it's exciting that um, there was a captive market there and, a, and an audience that still craves consuming something they've never had before. But uh, we needed to open Fish Butchery Paddington to uh, be able to accommodate guests having that experience within St. Peter. And and like I said, that's now why we've got this quite a quite a nice circle where primary cuts go down to charcoal fish on the barbecue. They go across to Peterman so that people can have a beautiful uh, Chateaubriand of tuna uh, with chips and pepper sauce and have a bit of fun with that. And then back at St. Peter, you know, we can we can give people a, a salami of yellowfin tuna um, and, and we can age fish for an extended period of time to give them an experience that feels more like meat. There's cool factor to it, I suppose. If that's that sounds a bit ugly, but like it, it, it um, there, there's an aspect to it that is there's novelty. For there's sure. novelty and there's marketability within um, parts of the work that we do, but all of it to create nostalgic feelings towards feeling comfortable with the meal that you're eating, and and it's to remove all the discomfort and all the friction that lies within fish, because we can all remember the fish shop that we couldn't see but we could smell and then when we did get in there then you know we're trudging through water and and it all feels a little bit too cold and and it doesn't have a feeling of comfort by any means so we're we're Priority is to make things delicious and then secondary to that is to really make people feel comfortable uh, and enjoy the experience because we're very fortunate in Australia to have such beautiful produce. You sell products within the fish butchery yeah. that you can take home and cook for yourselves. One of the ones that we frequently have is the lasagna. And <laughs> it's interesting because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily taste like it's a beef lasagna or no. something like that. It has the fishiness come through. So you have successfully um, shifted the way that I might think about mm. that particular food item. Are there any meals that you're working on or you've got ideas for, but you haven't quite found 
the right way to do it yet. Fish is really expensive. And to look at the cost of a loin of tuna that's been cylindrically carved out of the middle of the loin, you know, that's that's sitting anywhere in the hundreds of dollars a kilo. You can think about going into a great butchery and, and paying a fortune for a grain fed or a wagyu or something. Tuna carries that same reverence. And, you know, that ostracizes a big percentage of the market. And unfortunately, few kids can sit down to a, a center cut of tuna. And what we're trying to do is say that like an animal, there are primary cuts and secondary cuts. And we're going to take the secondaries out on day one and then put them to work straight away. So we're going to take the really tough sinewy cuts of the tail. We're going to look at it as if it's oxtail. We're going to potentially braise it down. We're going to pick it. We're going to put it into a meat pie. Or then, you know, we're going to take the really heavy, dark lateral muscle out of the fish that usually always gets pushed aside. And we're going to grind that down and we're going to make a ragu. We're going to make bolognese, which like you said, a, a beautiful lasagna. And that way then it becomes something that we can consume on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And it doesn't feel like a fancy fish dinner. It's just a yummy lasagna. Um, and the kids get their omega-3s. You know, everybody has a little bit of a giggle later on when they say, well, that was actually tuna. And, you know, even my kids giving them a, a tuna cheeseburger and, and them still resolute that charcoal fish serves a beef burger for just for her, <laughs> just because, um, you know, uh, th there's not always the desire to eat fish when we, when we go for takeaway. These things are meant to be fun and they're meant to encourage, I suppose, a, a larger audience than just us here in Sydney. And then not only just here in Australia, it's to suggest that there's marketplaces all over the world that are wrestling with you know, tons and tons of waste and, you know, some waste that doesn't even go to market. There's something that got said that half the fish that gets caught goes to waste even before it goes to market. And then you can only appreciate then that the, the fish that does arrive to market, then if we're only going to see half of it as being valuable, then you're forever working in this constant state of subtraction that's detrimental to us interacting with wild fish in the future. And I think for my children and their children, I think that's a real shame. And and it, it's grossly privileged that we can say that we only want the eight centimeters out of the middle of something, whether it's fish or meat or a carrot. I mean, if you buy something, it's yours. Put it to work. You'll probably find a greater love and appreciation for cooking and for hospitality and an appreciation for where your food is from and how much you invest in it. At fish butchery, all of the fish is handled dry. Mm. So the last time it touched water was when it was in the water that it was swimming in. Mm. Why is that a better system? Yeah. And to clarify that, and uh, I suppose once a fish comes out of the water, um, best practice is that it goes into an ice slurry post coming out of the water, and that's to remove the lactic acid component in the fish. If lactic acid resides within the fish, then it starts to cook the fish from the inside out, which then spoils the fish very quickly. Speaking into the idea of dry handling, if you think of osmosis and fresh water passing through the membrane into something saline, something salty, it's trying to find an equilibrium and making the salt water less salty. And then as that does that, the cells within the muscle fill with fresh water and those cells eventually rupture and break. And the water that's gone in basically resides within the flesh and, and rapidly speeds up the degradation of that product, of the protein itself. And so if you think about it, the best way I can contextualize it for you is if you walked into a Vic's butchery, a Victor Churchill or, or Hudson's Meats, and, and you saw them breaking down the shoulder of a lamb or, or a, a sirloin on the bone, you take that piece of meat off the bone, you dip it in a pool of water in front of you, and then you take a steak, slice it off, dip the steak in water, and then pop it up on a tray of ice and then sell it. 
how long do you think you have before that fish is slightly tainted or green or wet, slimy, has an odor? Uh, and we don't really think of it like that at all, um, but we would know we know not to ever do that. Um, and the same thing for fish. I mean, this repetitious washing to keep it in a state of, I suppose, opulent freshness and and glossiness is the most backwards, ridiculous system that's sending fish spoiled within the state of three to four, you know, maybe five days post coming out of the water. And we're talking about our fish that has the potential of going three to four weeks. That three to four week shelf life isn't consistent across all species. I'd be the first to put my hand up and say a snapper, a King George whiting, a rock flathead, a, a flounder is going to be best enjoyed and at its absolute best moments after you get it. Between days one and four is magical condition and get it out to the customers as quickly as you can. Whereas if you know as a small business owner that you've purchased something that's extremely expensive and you need to maximize the opportunity of the whole fish, and I know that I've got three weeks to do that, then of course that's that's a really important thing. And then you look what happens within that period of time and all the glutamates within the fish start to become active and then it starts to become more savory, it becomes more delicious, and you get guests saying to you, wow, this is the freshest fish I've ever had. Meanwhile, it's 15 days old. Whether deliciousness is associated with freshness, <laughs> that's that's another thing. But I'm happy for guests to sort of say, wow, this is really fresh and delicious. And you can agree that it is. But washing a fish, is it speeds up uh, a compound within a fish to, to change into uh, ammonia. And ammonia is what we all associate as being called fishy fish. And when you've got fishy fish, the only way that you mitigate that is through the use of acidity. And acidity usually comes in the form of half a lemon that sits on your plate or tartar sauce that goes with your fish and chips or peppers uh, from the Mediterranean or tomatoes, things like that, that, you know, we've looked at magazines, we've looked at cookbooks, we've, we've been fed a story of, um, you know, enjoying your fish with a lemon butter sauce. And that's all because we're building these dishes or, or the culinary repertoire has built these dishes for the fact that eventually they're going to fall off the cliff and we need some polishing mechanisms to get the smell away from our nose so we can get it to our mouth. Again, I, j- I just think that's a fairly broken logic and it limits the opportunity of what flavors we can pair with fish. I think this is what we mean when we say game-changing and disrupting because even the conversation around how we view 15-day-old fish Mm. and the fact that we should think of it as fresh because of the way it's been treated and and not necessarily this idea of if you didn't have it the moment that you caught it, which would Mm. still be delicious. Yeah. Um, Well, that's an interesting point. It might be waste or it might be wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, this whole idea of fresh is best most of our fondest memories when we're consuming the best fish we've ever had usually comes in the form of the one trip that we got taken on to go fishing. Uh, and then when we caught the fish, then we're like, okay, we'll, we'll have a taste of it. We'll, we'll try it raw. You'll dip it in some soy sauce and some wasabi. You'll, you'll eat it and you'll think, wow, this is so sweet and clean and, you know, texturally it's quite crunchy and, and it just feels fresh. Like it, it's a good summary of what the word fresh means. It's because it didn't go and get washed and thrown around in a, in a barrel for, for a week in a box and, and bumped into and ice melting over the top of it and all these things. It's the most purest form of what the product is. And, you know, recently going to Tokyo and for the very first time and tasting day one 
few hours after it got caught fish, that's quite an experience. It, textually, it's polarizing to what we've been used to, I suppose, eating here in here in Sydney, or at least I've grown up with in Maitland, <laughs> with fresh fresh flathead out of the Hunter River. Um, you know, it, it's it's a different experience, a different texture that I suppose if you've grown up eating that type of texture, you you really appreciate it, and you won't deviate from that being your. I suppose, best memory of fish. And so I understand that the conversation I'm having about premium aged and, you know, charcuterie and all these different things, it's a privileged conversation and it's very niche and it's very independently, I suppose, uh, the lane that we've chose to be in. But whilst uncovering these things, you apply some logic to it. And, And the reason why we hang a fish by the tail with a hook in it is so that it doesn't bump into another fish next to it or it doesn't lay on a tray to sit in its own moisture, in its own perspiration. Um, And, you know, if it sits side by side with another fish, it'll rub and create moisture next to that one. And then the more moisture that's present, the more odors that are generated. It's like if you took a a hose to a a cellar where some prosciuttos were hanging and you decided to just give everything a quick spritz, a day later, it's all going to be pretty miserable. We couldn't imagine it, and yet no. when you're explaining it in terms of fish, it, it does sound new because it isn't something that necessarily is happening everywhere. Right. Can I talk about yeah. your uh, international renown? Oh. <laughs> I know that you want to sigh at that one, but you were the first Australian to win the James Beard Book of the Year Award, which is for your first cookbook, The Whole Fish Cookbook. Has having conversations with people overseas changed anything that you're aware of? Have you heard of different practices happening in other countries that you think that we should know about? Yeah. I mean, there's there's quite a cohort of people aging fish in America now, which is exciting. It's great. And and I feel having the opportunity to travel with the Whole Fish Cookbook um, was a really wonderful experience for me and, and being welcomed with open arms into the likes of Blue Hill uh, with Dan Barber and Grant Ackett at Alinea and, and even Chad Robinson at Tartine and being allowed the opportunity to do a little masterclass for their team. Uh, and explain the theory behind the work like you're doing with me right now. It's, it's you know, the not, uh, I suppose sharing all this is the important thing and it's to know it and then how you want to use it, it's up to you. And, I mean, even if you think about 5% of what we're talking about and, and just start to use one more part of the fish than you were yesterday, then that's, that's a I suppose, that's a good thing to happen. But, uh, you know, to see fish getting aged in America and even uh, a new modern-style fish shop opening uh, in, in the UK specifically, in London, uh, we've seen quite a few different shops open now that are, are practising a similar philosophy of dry handling uh, and, and looking to utilise the whole fish rather than just the fillet. And for me, uh, seeing the, I suppose, enthusiasm and excitement around the first book when I was travelling and things, and even via social media, chefs sharing with you what they've done or or how they've interpreted a recipe that I've done, seeing that sometimes there was, I felt negatively about it because I don't think they started with the premise of I'm doing this because I want more from one fish or, you know, I wanted this delicious outcome or whatever it might be. Like it it wasn't starting from a place of solving a problem. It was starting from a place of, I want the end result on my menu all the time. And I'm going to buy specifically this organ or this cut of fish so that I can replicate this and repeat it over and over and see it as a business, which it is. But 
it's more, um, I suppose I needed to clarify the work that we were doing and the, I suppose the practices that we've finally got into a good flow now with at, at fish butchery. And I wanted to polish, I suppose, what the whole fish looked like in the form of this new book, fish butchery, just to make sure that, um, I wasn't speaking with any gray area and, and I could actually, um, I suppose, advance the main reason for, for why I'm doing all this in the first place. And I think so, a lot of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I was given a very wonderful education by Stephen Hodges specifically, who before him got given a great education by Greg Doyle. And then, you know, at a similar time, you've got people like Neil Perry, you've got John Sussman, um, you've got all these, you know, I suppose, Australian fish icons that carved a path of dry handling, uh, going direct to fishermen, raising the standards of what Australian cuisine kind of looks like. And to be uh, loosely a part of that lineage, I think that was an opportunity in and of itself. And I felt given that Steve had invested so much time in me and my education, then I didn't want to... I suppose throw up the middle finger and do something differently and, and go and do meat or go and do something that didn't carry the value of the information that he'd given me. So yeah, that was why I suppose we ended up choosing fish. It was because I I, I was fascinated by how difficult it was and I and I thought it could be I thought it could be better. Well, you've become synonymous with this fin to scale philosophy mm. with with using the whole fish and also this creative approach to how we can use what, what we might have thought of as being waste. Yeah. So I have had a excellent time talking to you. Thanks, oh, thanks so much for coming <laughs> in. If anyone is listening and feels inspired to kind of create things at home or just wants to check out the new cookbook, Fish Butchery, Mastering the Catch, Cut and Craft by Josh Nyland is available now from Hardy Grant. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you.